0: We'll Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bounds. On the programme today, we have a veritable feast of cultural goodies. We'll be speaking to the American musicians Emile Mosseri and Caitlin Aurelia-Smith about their new collaborative album. We'll meet Canadian artist Kapwani Kawanga at Art Basel in Switzerland. And we're going to be chatting with a stunt driver who's launched her on-screen career in none other than the new Bond movie. That's all to come on Monocle on Culture. Do stay tuned. We're going to kick things off with some music and an album that caught our attention when it was released last month. I Could Be Your Dog is its name and it's a collaboration between the Oscar nominated composer Emil Mosseri and critically acclaimed electronica artist Caitlin Aurelia Smith. The duo got to know each other just before the pandemic hit and during a long period of being stuck at home started sending each other musical ideas. The result is a short but cinematic record that blends Smith's lush and rhythmic synth work with Mosseri's romantic scores. It's the 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 first of two albums the pair have made together without being in the same room. The second will come out next year and that will be called I Could Be Your Moon. Emile Mosseri and Caitlin Aurelia-Smith chat to producer Holly Fisher about their collaboration.
1: Caitlin reached out and we both were aware that we lived in the same city and we planned on hanging out and I think a year or so went by before we actually did it. Um, and we started hanging, we went on a few walks together and then we kind of became fast friends. And then she left LA and I feel like uh, this collaboration sort of was a way for us to sort of continue our friendship. And yeah, it was kind of a, a creative lifeline and, and vibe replenisher throughout the pandemic. Cause it was right in the belly of the beast of the pandemic.
2: We talked on the phone a lot. We kind of came up with the process plan A little bit before I left, so while we were in person, we talked about some things that we wanted to explore. And then we each just started putting together some ideas, some like rough ideas, and then sent each other tracks, like some some like themes to expand on. And then we just kept on passing it back and forth and talking on the phone.
1: I don't think we've ever been in the same room. Yeah,
2: we've never been in the same room.
1: <laughs> we've been outdoors walking around together, but we've actually never been in a room together, which is crazy.
2: Yeah, we've hardly hung out without masks on. I feel like I've seen your face in person without a mask for less than five minutes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it was like for less than five seconds, it was like just... Yeah. <laughs> like really quick showing each other each other's faces and then and then putting on her mask. I remember I had I was really proud of the mask. I had it on at the time. It was really sparkly.
2: Yeah, it's a really good one.
3: Do you think that if you created something in the same room that it would be different from what
2: you create from afar? Though I think so because I feel like any time that there's like the a new presence, like even when I have. The presence of my cat in the room when I'm creating, (laughs) it comes out differently. Like I'm always responding to the environment around me. And so I think it would be a, a very different experience because when you do it remotely, then like you, you get that time for things to, to soak in and you get that experience of your first reaction to hearing something and you get the experience of letting it soak in for a few days, because sometimes we would take, you know, days or weeks to respond to each other.
3: A lot of these song titles are kind of about being a part of someone else, like um, Log In Your Fire or I Could Be Your Dog. Was that a conscious decision or were you kind of naturally drawn to exploring ideas of connection during what's been quite an isolating year?
1: The title of the, the prequel, I Could Be Your Dog, came naturally, but also then we found a thread in the process of, of writing these songs and, and naming them. I think you hit the nail on the head. It was this sort of isolating time and this was a way for us to be connected And us to be connected musically and us to be connected with a new, like having a new friend during a time when we were confronted with such, you know, familiarity because it was we were in our echo chambers of, of this sort of our loop patterns of the pandemic. I think one theme in this album too, lyrically and conceptually was the idea of surrender, you know, and that's another thread between like, I could be your dog or moon in your eye or log in your fire. Like, The idea of just like surrendering to that and finding the thread. I mean, we didn't set out to write these lyrics or write these songs about like with a certain concept in mind. It just sort of naturally happened, and we just went with it.
2: There's a really short poem that a friend of mine wrote (laughs) that just says two things come together to make a third thing. <laughs> and that's how I hear it. It's just, it's kind of the the result of our two worlds colliding.
1: I like that, yeah. Uh, two things come together. Is that the whole poem and its entirely Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that resonates with me. I think that it was more of like a conversation, like a musical conversation. And then it became something totally different, you know? Like we were reacting to each other Musically, the way that you would in a conversation. The conversation was just stretched out over space and time because we weren't, we worked on this record for a while and we also weren't in the same space.
3: The two of you have done quite a lot of soundtracking work in both of your careers. And I wondered if having that experience was useful to this project, like having the experience of coming up with a set of tracks that sit together cohesively in a way that. I guess thematically, like in a way that a soundtrack does rather than an album might work. Because I just think the whole of this album hangs together so beautifully as one succinct body of work that it's almost impossible that it came from two different brains. Um, and I wonder if just having that experience of making soundtracks made that easier.
1: I think I think that it did. I felt that way, that um, I felt like it, it was instead of collaborating with a visual collaborator or a visual artist like a director, it felt very cinematic in that way that like Caitlin's music is so incredibly cinematic and, and visual to me and, and, and colorful and also like connected to it's so tangible there's something very like connected to nature and, and, and the earth like there's something so grounded and tangible about her work but also colorful and expansive that it felt like the melodies that I heard when she would send over some, some sonic badge or some piece of music, the melodies that I heard felt almost implied by what, what she created. Like I thought they were just, they were already in there. And I, the same way that, you know, sometimes you can be inspired by a film or a, or a scene or a visual sequence in a film that the melody is sort of already kind of already in there. You just kind of have to grab it. I felt like I had that experience with Caitlin on this and, so when you say that it was, it felt so um, cohesive, or I forget the word you use, but that it, it was surprising that it came from two brains. I mean, that's that's the ultimate compliment. That's the ultimate goal, I think.
3: And just finally, what do you think you've taken from this process or learned from each other about your own creativity or your own music making process?
1: We've talked a lot about this actually, Caitlin and I, about like how, how different our styles are to, to like our approaches are to making music and but but there's also a lot of similarities as the type of feeling you get from, you know, from the type of feeling I get from her music, the type of feeling she got from my music before we actually met. Was, you know, was seems to be very aligned, you know, emotionally. Um, but you know, she Caitlin has such a different approach to making music that I'm sort of in awe of because I, you know, I don't work with synthesizers in that way, and um, just her sort of approach I've learned a lot from that. Um, it's hard to articulate, but I think, uh, you learn from every, every experience you anytime you work with another artist and it works you learn you learn a great deal and you take that with you you know for the rest of your musical life and i think
0: i'm grateful for that
1: i feel like i would gotten that from this experience and it's hard to articulate how you know i think time will tell how that we've shaped each other musically you know moving forward but i think you take a piece with I, i'm a strong believer in that that you take a piece with you uh, of every project when it's, when it, when it actually clicks.
2: Yeah, definitely. I feel like my, my inspiration container got, got like mega filled from the process because Emil is one of those musicians where it seems like he's like a waterfall of incredible melodies. And like, he just like opens his mouth and can sing perfectly and (laughs) just play like music just flows out of him so easily. And and that's not my personal experience with making music. And so I felt really inspired by by just seeing someone have that fluidity in their music making process.
1: Well, I, I mean, it's all a testament to, to what inspires you, you know? So like what I said earlier, like, it's really easy when you have something that's inspiring. Like most of, the, a lot of the ideas... Uh, or generated by you or originated with you with something that you created first, and that unlocked these like melodies. They were felt like they were implied or written, like, or, or just in the tapestry of the music. And it's the same with film or, or another, or when you're writing with another great artist or another songwriter, that it, it's only easy when you're working with something great. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's really been a joy making this, and I'm excited that it's out. We're excited that it's out in the world.
0: That was Emile Mosseri and Caitlin Aurelia-Smith talking about their new album I Could Be Your Dog which is out now on Ghostly. A gear shift now as we meet our next guest. Jess Hawkins is a 26-year-old British racing driver, but racing is an expensive sport. To fund her career, she took on some work as a driver for Fast and Furious Live, an arena show of daring vehicle-based stunts based on the film franchise. There she found that she had a natural ability for stunt driving, and it wasn't long before she donutted her way to her first ever on-screen job, which just so happened to be the new James Bond film No Time to Die. A Bond movie is surely a dream for anyone in the stunt world. So how do you handle the pressure behind the wheel when you're launching cars in the air for one of the biggest international spies in the world? Jess Hawkins tells us more.
4: Yeah, the Defender scene was crazy. Um, You can see just how far we go um, and how high we go and... When I was first told about it, I kind of took it in my stride. and But it wasn't until I was approaching the ramp at, God, I don't know what miles an hour, 60, 70-ish, maybe more, I don't know, um, that I suddenly realised, oh my God, what am I doing? And once I'd hit the ramp, all I could see at the time was a grey sky and rain and literally nothing else, couldn't see any floor or anything. And I was obviously heavily anticipating an extremely painful landing. Honestly, I wasn't nervous at all until I started driving towards it. So I didn't really have um, much time to think about it. I was doing it then. I'm the driver of the car, but there's so many key people that make what I do possible. And Lee Morrison, the stunt coordinator, I have belief and trust in him. And likewise, he has to have trust and belief in his drivers so when lee says this is possible i believe him lee is a very very busy man lee's got many roles and he's the brains behind it and he he's the brains behind the stunts etc and i feel very much a part of his team and that's that's something that is amazing
0: there's something i need to tell you i bet there is
4: so yeah racing is obviously where i started and i am i'm racing a little bit again now um but honestly i i see my career going the stunt driving way and i really really enjoy it and it's something all right it's not what i originally set out to do but what it is is a second chance and i enjoy it just as much and yeah the the bonded snowball i guess kind of into a few more movies and and I'm hoping that it, it will continue to do that. And um, hopefully you never know I might I might get the I might get a phone call for the next Bond movie.
0: That was stunt artist Jess Hawkins who worked on No Time to Die, which is out in cinemas now. <laughs> Our final interview comes today from Art Basel in Switzerland, which wrapped up last week. It's not often that you see an actual artist at an art fair, but Monocle's culture editor Chiara Ramella tracked down Canadian-born Kapwani Kiwanga at this year's event. Most creatives don't like getting too involved with the world of commerce that takes place in the exhibition halls, but having artists at hand can open up a whole new perspective on why making and buying art matters. Kiwanga tells Chiara about the spectacular piece of hers that occupied the entirety of Jerome Poggi, Booth and explained the commitment at the heart of her archive-based practice.
5: So what you would see if you were here, uh, standing next to us, is um, 40 silver chains which are suspended from a hovering ceiling. Uh, The environment is all painted in an acetate grey, quite a dark grey. And so these silver chains are of different dimensions slightly, but they're all quite um, thin. And some of those chains are empty and have nothing on them and they're suspended from the ceiling and they touch another platform which is on the ground also the same gray but a proportion of the chains have silver sculptures on them and those sculptures are replicas of leaves or flowers, of two different uh, plants. pokeweed, which is one, and Mimusopodica, which is the other. And those two plants are poisonous, and from different historic archives, one was a trial of a particular woman, another is um, a botanist, notes from trips to Suriname, relates how these poisons were used by people who were in the condition of slavery to poison or allegedly poison their oppressors in a quest for freedom. So this work, as you will come across it, is, you know, I think still subtle, but it's a, it's a shiny silver piece. Um, with these tiny, almost charms that are hanging from the chains. But behind there's a the story of quest for liberation, the question of power and violence. But first, one can appreciate it for its, uh, I guess, occupying space, but in a very slight way, in terms of being these thin, I almost call them like rain, rain streams, that join the ceiling to the ground. And inside of those, these bigger drops of um, charms or of... Uh, Silver sculptures um, of the plants. So that's basically what you see uh, in a kind of a um, pretty geometrical, I guess, rigid format. Uh, so it's kind of all contained within a, in a square disposition, but not a, a regular grid. Uh, it's uh, more of a haphazard positioning of the different chains. Not haphazard at all because they were they're me- they're measured out <laughs> meticulously in the studio and also here, but do not follow a grid format let's put it that way
6: how have the last couple of years been for you creatively are you the kind of person who has thrived from isolation in the sense that you've been able to focus your energies creatively into something have you suffered particularly the lack of human contact and therefore you know there are artists who work better in total isolation and certain people who have actually welcomed just the time to work on their Mm. things and other people who have really hated it. Mm. How have
5: the last two years been for you creatively? I think there's been different moments. There's been phases. I've been very lucky that I had no work or shows that have been cancelled, just postponed. But that stop and go, stop and go has, you know, it means that you have to have extra energy to be able to find that momentum that you had for a project that you have to put on hold and then you have to find that momentum again. So that's been a challenge, but I've been lucky that I have, you know, I have a small group of people that work with me part-time. And being able to share that and to motivate one another in that. And when you're kind of just feeling exhausted over something, they'll pick up the slack and then vice versa. So we work together as a team. So that ends up helping you. And I think had I been just you know on my own without those the help of people of my team, then it would have been more difficult. But also being privileged enough to have different shows or projects happening in different parts of the world meant that when there was a stop in one part of the world it was going in the other part of the world or things people were feeling really run down you know maybe in Germany at one point and then you know it was was going fine in Canada and then it would just like flip so you would constantly have something on the go and I was just very lucky that I had that and I don't have a studio practice where I have to go into the studio every day and we have you know 500 people that are coming in to work, that's not the scale at which I work at all. So I didn't have those pressures. But I was able to keep people that do work with me um, on that whole time. I mean they were ha- really happy to be able to continue with the projects and be like, okay, there is still purpose in what we're doing. The world has not ended. We'll continue to work away on things. And if that meant even just working on archive of stuff that we didn't we had backlog of that we hadn't been able to work on before, we could dip into that when things slowed down. So I think the problem of having such a high-speed life is that you kind of accumulate things that you just haven't been able to finish to the degree that you would like to. So you could slip back into that as well and finish off that stuff. So there was never a lack of work. And I think the most difficult thing was what I think everybody in any sector was dealing with, just like human contact and being able to, and, you know, the the questions of what's going to come next. But that's not new, like I said, it's not new for artists anyways. We never know one month to next are very different in terms of opportunities, in terms of uh, a lot of things. So I think that instability, you kind of end up being able to be okay with somehow.
6: And... And creatively, do you think that it has impacted the way that you do? I
5: think one thing that did change is that I do like going into archives and I wasn't able to physically go into archives and people that I work with weren't able to physically in archives. So sometimes there might be an archive in a different part of the world that I'd like to visit, but I can't. So there's a friend or a friend of a friend who can go in and kind of exhume a document. That couldn't happen. So things were much more online which you kind of do anyways. You kind of research online catalogs of physical objects, but I also like going in to see the the physical archive. And so that was not possible in some things, so that slowed back some of the work, but not loads. Creatively, I think products were already kind of started when the pandemic happened, so they just had moments of stop, go, stop, go. But I just continued to work on things that had already been kind of rolling somehow.
6: What attracted you first to work with archives? And can rethinking the archive rewrite history? Mm -hmm.
5: So I have a background in anthropology and comparative religion, so research I've always loved in terms of, um, I think I always want to understand how we got to where we are now, and archives are a way to do that. Archives have its limits, archives are very violent spaces, archives are selective spaces, archives are curated as anything else. I'm not so interested in rewriting history, because it should be rewritten continuously. I think things should be in flux, and that's why I try to work with slight materials that are often moving and are fragile in some way. So there's never a statement that is written in stone, per se. Things should always be able to move and, and to circulate. So I'm not interested in rewriting history, but I'm interested in complexifying it, um, adding layers to it, adding in perspectives that can, I guess, tremble a bit, uh, can make a bit of trouble in the, in the archive and in our understanding of history or of our present, so that we have the conversations around these things and we don't get comfortable in a narrative. And we can open up saying, this is what I think, but maybe I'm wrong. Or maybe I've left that out. So leaving an openness to things. So that's, I think, the archive for me is a place to kind of go and start. And then from there I bounce off and I go elsewhere. And I do think about a lot of my works as an attempt towards new documentation, a kind of a quest for a new kind of archive that doesn't speak, that doesn't try to be authoritative, but does give another kind of knowledge that maybe hasn't been privileged up until that point. Is there something to be found that's soothing
6: also in the past in the archive? Or is there disquiet and I guess like, does the process of kind of unearthing these things, does it have some sort of a soothing quality for you as well? Or is it more about unearthing the disquieting?
5: Yeah, there's there's nothing soothing about the archive, or at least the archives that I'm looking into, because I I'm interested in power imbalances and power asymmetries. So when you scratch the surface of any of that, even just recognizing that it's there, it's never a, a comfortable space to be in. But it seems to be a more earnest or honest place to be in, in terms of sitting with that complexity, sitting with that violence, sitting with that difficulty. And I think, I suppose, that's what some of my work is doing: is it's trying to bring that, unearth it, materialize it, allowing it to have its space, as opposed to being buried, or made invisible, or silenced. So it's it's allowing it to have its space because one feels it, but maybe doesn't hasn't named it. Um, if there are injustices and if there's disquiet in a society, it doesn't come from out of thin air. It may be a subaltern that has, hasn't been uh, given its day in the sun per se, but it's there. So I think it's, it's materializing, and that's maybe why we work, or why I've chosen to work with materials in this way, to give it a, a space. But I also, my work is often kind of leading towards an invisibility or trying to escape into um, a space of, of, of mutation and changing of form. So although it materializes I think there's often a potential, maybe less so in this piece than some of the other ones, but a potential to, to change and to move into something else. It's kind of a changeling aspect of, of the work. So there's nothing soothing at all in the archive, for me. But it depends on what you're looking for. I think you're looking for your great-grandparents' uh, you know, histories and trying to figure out your, your family tree. That could be soothing, perhaps, or it could be disquieting as well, depending on what you find and what you expect to find.
6: Yeah, I guess, A, the question was leading, because I wanted to, <laughs> to get you to talk about it. And B, also, because... I guess it depends what attitude you then take towards the find, whether the fact that you do find something makes you feel better or worse, yeah. as you were alluded to, right? Because, yes, you're unearthing it, and that's potentially, depending on what it is, a positive gesture. But it can also be, neg- not negative, but disquieting, if what you're unearthing is something that
5: it was, was buried before. <laughs> but it's usually worse than you think. I mean, when, when, you, get, when you start to, to get into look back into one's past, it's usually more violent and more difficult than one thinks. But it is uh, one of the realities, it's one of the truths. And, and if, if one has an intuition that one should be looking in that direction, then it's already there. So no, it doesn't, it's not perturbing uh, particularly. It's, it's just a concentration of, I guess, what would expect to find anyway.
0: That was the artist Kapwani Kiwanga speaking to Monocle's Kiara Rimella, And that brings us to the end of today's episode of Monocle on Culture, which was produced, of course, by Holly Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for tuning in.